Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Bible Lab, the podcast where we explore major themes from every book of the Bible in order to see how each page points to Jesus, who he is, and what he's done. I'm your host, Andy Wood. Thank you for joining me today, friends. So we are in the midst of an examination of the entire story of Scripture from beginning to end, and we are studying the Bible through the lens of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And we have said that there are eight distinct phases to the kingdom of God as you read through the story of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, and they all start with a P. We've looked at the pattern of the kingdom in Genesis 1 and 2. We've looked at the perished kingdom, the fall, the entrance of sin and death into the world from Genesis 3 to 11. We looked at the promised kingdom in Genesis 12, specifically 2 and 3. Also Genesis 15 and 17 as God makes this promise to Abraham of people, land, and blessing. And now we're come to the fourth phase, which is the partial kingdom. Now, astute observers amongst you might be thinking, um, so there's like, you know, over a thousand chapters in the Bible, and you said there's eight phases, and we've covered three, and we've gone over 12 chapters, and you are correct. These first few chapters of Genesis, Genesis uh, 1 through 12, are absolutely essential to understanding the rest of the Bible. Now, can you be saved without ever reading and understanding Genesis 1 through 12? Yes, you can. But you will live an impoverished life as a believer if you don't understand the richness of God's revelation to us in Scripture. And so we want to go deeper in our knowledge and understand all of the Bible better because we understand the foundations. So with that being said, we are now going to pick up our pace. This phase of the kingdom is going to cover about 1,000 years, and it's going to cover most of the Old Testament. Now, we've said that the three main elements of the promise of God's kingdom that God gave to Abraham were people, land, and blessing. In this phase, we're going to add a fourth element of God's promised blessing, and that is kingship. Now, the way we're going to do this, just to kind of keep everything straight and organized, is we're going to divide this phase of the kingdom into four parts, and we're going to look at how God keeps one of these promises at a time. Now, God is never just doing one thing. He's always doing a trillion things. But with our limited human brains, we need to look at one thing at a time. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at how God keeps the promise to Abraham about people in this episode. And that's going to cover Genesis 12 through Exodus 18. In our next episode, we're going to look at the promise of God's rule and blessing. And that will cover from Exodus 19 through the rest of Exodus and the book of Leviticus. In our third episode in this series, we're going to look at how God keeps the promise about land, and that's going to cover the books of Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua. In our fourth episode in this little mini-series, we're going to look at the promise of God's king, and that's going to be the book of Judges, Samuel, and Kings. So let's look first at the promise regarding God's people. And again, that's Genesis 12 through Exodus 18. So the format for all four of these episodes will be the same. The first thing we'll do is we will remind ourselves of the promise that God made. The promise in Genesis 12, 2 says, and I will make of you a great nation. And remember, that means not only a lot of people, it also means they're going to be God's special chosen people. Like it says in Exodus 6, 7, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Now, we're also going to add a study and looking at how the promises were partially fulfilled in the Old Testament, in the story of Israel, 
And we're going to look ahead to how these promises are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Because remember, as it says in 2 Corinthians, all of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus. So all of these promises were kept partially in the Old Testament, but they were ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. So the partial fulfillment of this promise begins with Abraham and Isaac. Now, God promised Abraham that his descendants will be a great nation and they'll be God's own people. But there are many problems along the way. First and foremost, Sarah is barren. Abraham is about 75 years old and Sarah is 65 when this promise is initially made. They have no children and they've never been able to have children. Abraham's solution to this promise after about 15 years of waiting to sleep with Sarah's servant and have a child through her makes the situation worse. And again, friends, we we hear these stories and we want to make sure that we don't just skim over them and say, yeah, I know that story. There's nothing else for me to learn. There's always something else for us to learn. And what Abraham needed to learn is that if the gospel, the good news of God's kingdom is going to be fulfilled, only God can bring it about. Abraham needs to trust in God's promise that when Abraham is told, I'm going to give you a mighty nation through your wife, Sarah, that God's going to do it. And this is, again, not an outlandish connection to make to Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, when Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. God is going to bring about his salvation. He's going to do it in a way where no one gets to brag about how they helped poor old God out. No, God did it. God gets the glory. So when Abraham is 100 and Sarah is 90, a miracle happens. Sarah has a son, and his name is Isaac. A few years passed, and then God issues an astonishing command. He tells Abraham to take his son Isaac, his only son, as the text repeats like four times, and take him up to a mountain and offer him as a sacrifice to God. Now, Abraham obeys, even though he is, I'm sure, completely confused. And what we learn is that Abraham is not a bad father. We learn from the book of Hebrews that Abraham was such a man of faith that he understood that God had promised a mighty nation through Isaac. Isaac's a young boy. He has no children. And obviously, if Isaac is dead, he can't have children. So Abraham thinks that he is going to go and kill his son on the mountain. But he is so certain of God's faithfulness and power that he is convinced that God will resurrect Isaac. And friends, again, this is a story we know. And we too must trust God even when we don't know what he's doing. Have faith that he always knows what he's doing. Now, we know how that story ends. God tells Abraham not to sacrifice Isaac. He provides a ram as a substitute. Isaac lives. The ram dies. Yes, that also points us to Jesus, who he is and what he's done. But at any rate, Isaac grows up. He marries Rebekah, and they have twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Now, Jacob, the younger, he receives the blessing that God promised. You can think of this as sort of a family inheritance. It goes from Abraham to Isaac, and then it goes to Jacob. And he receives this blessing, even though he is not only the younger of the two sons, but quite frankly, a pretty terrible person. And again, the principle here, the timeless principle is that God does not choose people on merit. If we're Christians, it's not because of our worth. If we're Christians, it's because of God's choice, God's grace. This is what Paul speaks to when he says in Romans 9, 10 through 13, speaking about the story of Jacob and Esau, he says, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. So God made sure to tell everyone that he was choosing Jacob before the boys were born 
so that no one could think, well, you know, maybe it's because Jacob, you know, he always did the dishes. And so that's why God said, ah, that's the one for me. No, he chose them when they were still in the womb so that everyone would see, as Paul says, that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So Isaac passes the blessing to Jacob. And Jacob, after a long story, a lot of mistakes, but God's relentless grace running him down, he has 12 sons. His 11th son is a boy named Joseph. Joseph is the son of Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel. He is his father's favorite, and his brothers hate him for it. And so when they get an opportunity, they sell Joseph into slavery. Joseph goes and he faithfully serves his master. He is then falsely imprisoned for a crime he did not commit, and he's faithful even in prison. He eventually gets released from prison through interpreting dreams, and God uses Joseph to save not only Egypt, the nations, but save his family from famine. And this is even still a little inkling of the family of Abraham blessing the nations, because Joseph is certainly a blessing to the nations. And we can see here that God has been in control this entire time. God always moves to ensure that his gospel promises are protected. Now, Joseph didn't know that. When Joseph is being led off into slavery, Joseph's not thinking to himself, ah, I bet this is how God's going to keep the promise to crush the head of the serpent and to bless the nations through the family of Abraham. That's why I'm being sent down to Egypt. No, no, Joseph had no idea. He had no idea what God was doing, but he trusted that God did. And again, here's a principle for us. Even when we don't understand God's purposes, we can be sure that they are loving purposes and they are wise purposes. Nothing can stop God from keeping his promises. So Joseph brings the family of Abraham down into Egypt, and they stay there for 400 years. And over the course of 400 years, the family is fruitful, and they multiply, and they become a mighty nation. But the kings of Egypt grow nervous about this large immigrant group living in their midst, and they begin to enslave and oppress them. And so God raises up a lowercase d deliverer, just like Noah was a lowercase d deliverer, but not the ultimate deliverer. He raises up a man named Moses. Moses is out in the wilderness of Midian. He's tending sheep and he sees a burning bush. And the burning bush is a appearance of the God of the universe. And at this meeting with Moses, Yahweh reveals a a new name, so to speak. The name, I am who I am. And this speaks to God's eternality. This speaks to God's independence. And all of these things are happening because the Bible doesn't just want to tell you the story of God's work, what he does. It also wants to reveal God's character, who he is. He is the hero from beginning to end. The Bible is a book about God. And so in every story we read, we don't just want to ask, what is God doing? We also want to ask, what does this tell us about God? And one of the things that the story of Egypt and the Exodus tells us is that God saves his people by substitution. The people are slaves. Moses goes and he tells the Pharaoh, let my people go. And nine times Pharaoh says no, and nine times God sends plagues on the nation of Egypt, the water turning into blood, frogs, and gnats, and flies, and boils, and hail, and darkness, until finally there's a tenth plague, and this is what we call the Passover. Exodus 12, 23, the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. The Israelites and us are being taught an important lesson here. God saves by substitution. 
His people are not innocent victims. Yes, they are being oppressed by the Egyptians, but we learn from other parts of Scripture that they were also practicing idolatry and worshiping the gods of the Egyptians. They were not worshiping the one true God. They were grumbling and complaining and doubting him. His people had sinned, and they deserved to die for their sin. But God graciously makes a way for anyone, even an Egyptian, who trusts in the promises of God to be spared from the wrath of God. And this strange ceremony that we call the Passover, this points us to Jesus, who he is and what he's done. That's why when John 129, we read, the next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So we get this image of salvation, of God saving by substitution, an innocent substitute dying for the sins of his people. We also get another image of salvation. God saves by conquest. So after the Passover night happens, the people of Israel go out of Egypt and God leads them into a trap. He takes them down by the Red Sea. They have no boats. They have no way to cross. And Pharaoh and his army, hearts hardened by God so that God can cast them down and receive glory. They come charging out after the Israelites and the people are screaming, we're doomed. And God parts the Red Sea. The people walk through on dry land and then God brings the sea back on the heads of the Egyptians and crushes the enemies of his people and saves them. This is what our God does. He saves by substitution. He saves by conquest. And when we think about who Jesus is and what he's done, this is how God saved us. Jesus is the in, the innocent, perfect, spotless lamb of God who was given in place of our sins, who bore the wrath of God. And Jesus isn't just the innocent lamb. He's also the conquering lion who destroys and defeats our enemies, but he does it through dying. So as we read these stories, friends, read deeply. See the glory of our Savior, that God is keeping his promises. God promised Abraham a mighty nation that would belong to him, and God has kept that promise. Because God leads the people to Mount Sinai, and he enters into, I think the closest analog that we can think of is is a wedding ceremony. He makes the nation of Israel his people by a formal ceremony at Mount Sinai. The people belong to Yahweh. Now, how, do we, how does this point us forward to Jesus? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us in the book of Romans that if you have faith in the Messiah Jesus, then you are the offspring of Abraham. The family of Abraham was millions strong, perhaps as many at their high point as 10, 15 million people. And when you think about where they started from, a, a, an old man and an old woman, a woman with no children, wow, what an amazing promise. But you look all the way into the future, And Revelation 7 tells us that the true family of Abraham, the family of those who have trusted in the promises of God and have been spared by the conquering lamb, Jesus Christ, they are a multitude so great that no one can number them. Billions upon billions of people spending eternity worshiping King Jesus. Numerous, you betcha. God's special people forever. So we see that God keeps his promises to Abraham about people. In our next episode, Lord willing, we will see how God keeps his promises to Abraham regarding his rule and blessing. But for now, take up and read, my friends. God bless.